I'll never forget the blinking light. Blinking light. My brother Adam and I were 13 years old. We had been playing ice hockey for a couple of years. And living in Manhattan, we, we played ice hockey at the Greater New York City Ice Hockey League. Man, remember those days. We would go up on Thursday nights. It would be late at night. Parents let us stay up because it was so important to us. And we would play a couple of games. And pretty usually, as it would go, we would do our homework. <laughs> and, and then we would head up to the rink. And the games would end pretty late at night. So, of course, my dad would be there when the game would end. And on this particular night, though, my dad couldn't get out of work. So he sent his friend... Marty. Poor Marty. The blinking light. My dad told him before he met us, he said, you better stop and get some gas. But Marty didn't listen. And there he was, ready to pick up his friend's two most precious, precious possessions, precious elements of his life, my dad had entrusted him with us. You're getting it, right? You're getting it. And there he was, he was waiting. We weren't, of course, expecting him, and, but we knew him. We said, okay, Marty's here to pick us up. It's quite late at night. And we got into the car with Marty, and that's when I noticed the blinking light. The car was, had a gas light that was blinking. So my brother and I both said to him, you know, Marty, the, the, the gas light's broken, and he said, uh, I know. <laughs> it's been like that for a while, you know, I, I sometimes drive on it like that, I can go 20 miles, 30 miles, don't worry, we're going to get home, don't you worry at all. We're going to find a gas station along the way, it'll be closer to home, no problem. It was exactly 11.43 when we were stranded by the side of the road. I had no idea where we were. He had no idea. This was pre-cell phones, everyone. We had no idea if there was a gas station within a mile or two. We didn't have any idea if anybody would come by. We were stalled and stranded on the way home. I remember thinking to myself, why didn't Marty Why did he avoid the unavoidable? Why did he ignore the inevitable? And I wondered to myself, I wonder if we're ever going to get home. We stall for all kinds of reasons as we make our journey home. Isn't that the case? We stall, get stuck for all kinds of reasons on our way home. And we're on our way home, always. We're on our way home like the great heroes of every mythical and mythological system. Each and every one of us is a hero on a journey home. And especially at this time of the year when the most important of the things that we are engaged in is One second, where is it? It's not here. I'll just tell you what it is. 
tshuva. Tshuva, which means to return, literally means to return a lost object, retranslated and mistranslated as repentance, means to rethink. To repent means to think over again, but the deeper meaning of the word tshuva, which is what we are doing today in the deepest way, and what we have been doing for 10 days, and what we in the tradition are told to do each and every day is we are making our way home. And along the way, we get stuck. This process of chuvaing, of course, began in the mythical story of the Garden of Eden, right? Where am I hiding? Can I admit to myself and to others? Can I use my voice to say, please find me? I'm here, ready to be found, but we hide. And hiding is another way of saying we're not really still on the way home. We hide when we fear and we are ashamed. And one of the things, of course, that we do, one of the most classic forms that Marty did and still does in my own head over and over again is Marty chose avoidance. He avoided a truth, avoided a task, he avoided acknowledging a reality. And sometimes, often actually, avoidance is coupled with wishful thinking. I'm sure he wished that that gas would take him all the way home. It plays out in banal ways, day-to-day, -day, quotidian things. We have a deadline, we have an article to write or a paper to write, a project to finish, and we wait. We procrastinate. Just by a show of hands here, everybody. <laughs> How many of you bought your Colonel Bay tickets super late? Wow, five people admitted it. <laughs> we have the time marks, everybody. Come on. I think I'd actually ask you that question without knowing the answer. Come on. 50% at least. There's plenty of time. The high holidays come in late this year. And something that we laugh about, procrastination is so human. Because all of us have at least one place where we wait until tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow. For many of us, Tomorrow is the best time to do something you plan to do today. Right? That's what tomorrow is. But here's the thing. Etymologically, the word procrastination is derived from the Latin verb procrastinare, which means to put off until tomorrow. We got that so far, right? But it's also made up of another Greek word. Akrasia, which means to do something against your better judgment. To put off until tomorrow, okay. But to procrastinate is also to do self-harm. Staring at a gas light, hoping that it won't really mean what it means, is self-harm. <laughs> Waiting until tomorrow is a form of self-harm. But I'll tell you what, it doesn't feel that way, right? It doesn't feel like we're doing any harm to ourselves when we avoid or when we push something off. There's a reward that procrastination gives us. It relieves stress, tension, anxiety. At its core, there is an irrational move that is made. We feel anxious, we feel pressure, we feel too much. And so we push off the thing that we are anxious about and it gives us a sense of relief.
But then what happens? The thing that we had to do actually doesn't go away and our time now is shortened. There's an inevitable feedback loop. Procrastination feeds more procrastination. What we avoid, it doesn't go away. We do a dance around it, the avoid dance, avoidance. What lies at the heart of all procrastination is something called present bias. We choose present pleasure even if it will yield long-term pain. And we sabotage our success. Each and every one of us who's ever had an extra dollar in their pocket knows that it's so much easier and more pleasurable to spend it than to put it away. As a country, we know that. As individuals, we know that. It's hardwired. We have present bias. Short-term relief versus long-term success. But here's the thing. Yom Kippur, this day, has two elements to it, both of which are an answer to the question, why is it that we look at the gaslight over and over and over again? First, we need to understand that what tshuva means, to be a bal tshuva means to be a master of tshuva, comes in at least a few flavors. First of all, the amazing accolades that are accorded to someone who is a master of going home. The tradition recognizes that it isn't easy to go home. The tradition recognizes that it isn't easy to change a habit or to do a thing that we have known for a long time we must do. And therefore, the tradition says, find this. A bal tshuva, a master of return, is greater, says the, tshuva, the tradition, than any of the holiest of the holy sages. Someone who knows what it is to master tshuva, in at least the two variations that I will introduce to you, that master is the highest level, the highest madriga. About tshuva, the makom shebal tshuva omed ain't tzadik gamor yachol amod, says the tradition, so high. So here's the first thing that you need to know about tshuva, and then we'll get back to procrastination. I know, it's ironic. <laughs> Rav Cook says there are two kinds of tshuva. Tshuva hadragatit upitovit. Tshuva that is gradual and then there is sudden tshuva. Tshuva that is sudden is caused by a spiritual lightning bolt that enters the neshama. In one instant, a person sees with absolute clarity the unhealthy habits that are destroying their life, and they become an ish acher, another person, entirely. Tshuva hadrukatit, the staged tshuva, is gradual tshuva. No lightning bolt, a person improves their life bit by bit, moment by moment, over a longer period of time. Against the gradual tshuva, what it means to slowly and imperceptibly, but importantly, improve our lives, here's the the good news, research shows that the number one approach to helping you get more done is not a better app. <laughs> the number one productivity advice that research at Stanford University, at Brown University, have an entire 
research department on procrastination at Brown. <laughs> what do you think it is? Self-love, self-forgiveness, and self-compassion. Self-love, self-forgiveness, and self-compassion. That when we fail, we break the cycle of anxiety leading to avoidance, leading to more anxiety by loving and forgiving ourselves for that moment. We short-circuit. We cut it. Yom Kippur, in its first iteration of advice to us who look at the gaslight of our life, blinking and reminding us, is to say, take one small step, and when you avoid taking that one small step, forgive yourself, and then come back again and repeat and rinse and repeat. Not as a way out, but as a way through a horribly vicious cycle that eats itself. With that approach, we can imagine Marty maybe looking at that gaslight and maybe, maybe finding himself anxious because I better not get gas because then I'm going to miss picking up my buddy's kids. Maybe he was anxious, maybe. But in the second moment of Yom Kippur, which I want to now spend a couple of minutes with all of you on, because this is so vital for all of us where we are today, where we are as a community, where we are as a country, where we are as a global community. We have to hear the second style of tshuva, Rav Kook's sudden tshuva. What are the conditions in which a lightning bolt might strike? What are the conditions? What are the conditions in my life, in your life, where that might take place? So one thing is, we can have a crisis. I can't ask for a show of hands of how many people here wait for a crisis to happen before they change. I didn't ask for hands because I think there'd be too many. We'll come back to that. But here's where Yom Kippur is brilliant and where I shared this with a friend of mine this past week, why I love Yom Kippur so much. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is not interested in our imagined fantasy that there are endless gas stations between here and home. Yom Kippur is not interested in our delusional thinking that we have enough gas to get us there. Yom Kippur is not interested in the fantasy game that we play each and every day of our lives, thinking that it's going to be like this forever. Yom Kippur doesn't care about that. Yom Kippur says, wake up. Wake up. There's no gas station a mile away. You don't have enough gas. We come here, Rekim, Vidalim, we have nothing. My friend Jeffrey said to me last week, he said, Jews wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is we say, thank God for another day. That's beautiful, right? But Buddhists wake up and say, today might be the day that I die. 
And for most Jews, we'd say, wow, really? Morbid. <laughs> we don't suffer enough. <laughs> Can we live a little bit? Come on. What the tradition says, we should do tshuva every single day. And then the Talmud says, why should we do tshuva every single day? Why should we return home to our true self, our original self, our origin, our, our open-hearted place, our place where our priorities are? Mm. Why should we do that every day? And the Talmud says, because you might die. You have to, like your tshuva has to be done right before you die. So the Talmud says, but why should we? Says, That's why you do it every single day. Do tshuva every day because you don't know. And even though each and every one of us is saying, oh, come on. Because that's what you're saying. You have to say it. You wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if you didn't say it. None of us would. Tonight's dress rehearsal for what is inevitable and absolutely unavoidable takes the research done on self-love and compassion, which is so beautiful, and says there's another way. When your back is up against the wall and you realize that you don't have time. We're waiting until tomorrow is self-harm. Because there is no tomorrow. Yom Kippur offers us this chance and screams at us and says, now is the time, tomorrow is tonight. The pain and the anxiety that moves you to delay pales in comparison to finding yourself stuck on the side of the road. Anais Nin's great quote carries this way, the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Yom Kippur does that. Yom Kippur says, from the get-go, there are no promises this year that you have to keep because you might not have this year. Tonight matters. Tomorrow is tonight. What waits until tomorrow starts tonight. And part of that surely is a crisis mentality, a sense that I never want to feel this again. Had my friend Marty been stuck on the side of the road ever once before, he would have gotten gas. The pain of that experience would have forced him to make a change. These sudden changes, these chuvapit omit, do you think maybe that we're there yet with global warming? Meaning out of time experiencing a sufficient amount of pain to demand that we change now? My dear friend and Roma board member Nigel Savage, who is the CEO of Chazon, an organization that is at the vanguard of the Jewish environmental movement, wrote about a collective need to do environmental tshuva, coming home to our mother, the earth. He wrote to me and to others, we can't wait until tomorrow to commit to change, not only for our families and individual lives, but all of our institutions, 
every synagogue, every Jewish day school, every camp, every JCC, every place of work, every restaurant, every business, every non-for-profit, all of our collective enterprises need to immediately set up a green team or to significantly strengthen the one that already exists. We need to learn about food and the food we consume and the energy we use, our waste stream, our plastics, our travel. We need to do all of that not tomorrow, tonight. From now on starts now. A member of our community named Anna Levy Lyons, who is a dear friend, wrote a beautiful sermon about this urgency, this need for now. She wrote that maybe some would say that 30 years ago was the best time to plant trees. Do you know what the second best time to plant trees is, she said? Now. <laughs> From now on means now. From the global to the communal, the Jewish community, we have been discussing, of course, the rise of anti-Semitism on the left, on the right, in the center, anti-Semitism. But what about this? What about this great Franz Rosenzweig? People might know him. Some 106 years ago tonight, this young man who was a genius, this young man who eventually succumbed to ALS at the tender age of 43, after writing one of the most important philosophical works of the 20th century, The Star of Redemption, which he wrote on small cards that he sent back to his mother from the front in World War I. He was on the verge of converting to Christianity. For all kinds of reasons, Jews assimilated and thought that Christianity was a way of gaining acceptance. And on that fateful night in 1913, Yom Kippur night like tonight, he said, I'm going to give Judaism one more try. He said, I can't convert to Christianity until I'm fully Jewish and I don't know anything. So he went to a small synagogue in Berlin. We don't know what happened in there. But when he came out, he became one of the most famous Jews of the 20th century. He had a tshuva pit omit. He woke up. He did, as Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs said, he walked into a library with all kinds of books and then took one off the shelf that had his family's name on it and on one page there was his name that was blank. He said, what will I contribute to the Jewish world? How will I wake up to the Jewish heritage and treasures that are in my heart, that are in my own family? I was so profoundly moved that in the aftermath of Pittsburgh and the horrific massacre at the Tree of Life that so many synagogues were full to the brim the next week. But within two or three weeks after that, the ebb and flow of synagogue life ebbed. We have so much richness in our tradition. From now on means that maybe one of you who does not yet turn off their phone on Shabbat might turn off their phone 
Maybe one or two or 10 or all of you will walk out tonight and say, from now on, I'm gonna take on something in my Jewish life, a teaching, a practice. From now on starts tonight because it's not getting any better tomorrow. The attrition rate of Jews in North America is scary. And even in communities that focus on the positive and say, we don't need fear to motivate people to come to synagogues. We don't. Synagogues like Romamu and Central Synagogue in BJ, which put thousands of dollars into R&D to make Judaism alive and passionate. It's great. From now on starts tonight. Like Franz Rosenzweig walking in and saying, wow, oh my gosh, so beautiful. Learning, observing, marching, Jewish ing. At this bleak hour, often in Jewish history, we Jews have risen regardless of the catastrophe or the challenge at hand, we know as the people of the future that we are presently biased, but we step in now. V'im lo achshav when? If not now, when? And lastly, on the personal level, You know that story about Alfred Nobel, some say it's apocryphal, but it's still moving. So Alfred Nobel, of course, was the great chemist who discovered dynamite. And the story goes that basically his brother Ludwig had died in 1888, and a French newspaper mistakenly published Alfred's obituary. When he read his own obituary, Nobel was disgusted to find out what his public image was. The newspaper condemned Nobel for inventing dynamite. They gave him the infamous nickname Le Marchand de la Mort est Mort. The merchant of death is dead. And they went on to say in the obituary, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. I think about that. I think about that and I wonder to myself, you know, what if, what's going to be my obituary? <laughs> Sometimes funny. I had such a deep realization at some point this year that sometime early in my life I had traded in some of the human connection that I longed for, some of the deep love that I needed for excellence. 
had a realization at some point this year that I was paying a price, wanting to be as great a rabbi or as great a leader as I wanted to be, and it was taking a toll on me and my family. I hit a crisis moment, and I thought to myself, from now on, From now on, I said to myself, I'll spend as much time with my children as I do preparing my sermons. Because tomorrow sped up so quickly in my life this year, the gaslight was flickering. And I knew that I couldn't wait. Maybe that's you, maybe that's somebody here in your personal life wondering what it's going to take for you to change. Compassion and love and forgiveness, but maybe also the intensity of now and the absolute radical call that now demands. Mary Oliver of blessed memory wrote, the journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. And though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, Though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough. And a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own voice that had kept you company as you had strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing that you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Tomorrow is tonight. The future will depend on big and small acts of courage. We must, each in our own way and in our own capacity, make use of this urgency. What's out there in the world starts in here with me and you and each and every one of us. It doesn't end here with me and you, but it starts here. In this heart, in this room, in this community, in this country. It happens at our dinner tables, in our offices, in our relationships, with our co-workers and co-religionists. So if you've broken your vows, you're human. If you've been too scared to take matters into your own hands, Join the club, but for tonight, for this one day, you can courageously feel into those places and say to myself, I can't wait until tomorrow. It starts tonight. Your family needs you to do that. Your heart needs you to do it. We need you to do that. Mm. Lastly, my kids always teach me the deepest Torah. 
And for the last couple of months, they've been screaming, watch the greatest showman. You got to watch the greatest showman. <laughs> and I didn't know until I watched it that it was all about tshuva. See the story of P.T. Barnum, the fictional or true story. He comes back home after, if you don't know the story, spoiler. <laughs> He's been out in the world and he lost it. He got bludgeoned, you know, Yiddish for like, it mattered to him to meet famous people. It mattered to him to be a really big star. It mattered to him. And all he could think of was more, more, more. Crazy consumption, more. More experiences, more this, more that, until he finally comes home and everything has been taken from him but the things he loves. His family and his friends and the reason why he started the whole thing to begin with. So on our way home tonight, tomorrow, from our hockey rinks, from our careers, from our resumes, from all the things we have to do. We say from now on, these eyes, these ears will not ignore our planet's plight. <laughs> 